my dad sometimes tells this joke. A Sunday school teacher asks, "What was the name of Mary's baby?" And the little girl says, "Jesus." Then the Sunday school teacher asks, "Who read from the scroll of Isaiah in the temple and declared the captives free?" And the little girl said, "Jesus." Then the Sunday school teacher asks, "What is furry? Has long ears?" And jumps around on its big hind legs. And the little girl says, "Well, I know the answer is Jesus, but Miss, it sure sounds like a bunny rabbit." In Sunday school, all the answers are Jesus because the questions are not adequate. Jesus isn't the answer. If anything, the gospel writers paint Jesus as the great question and the great question are. Here's a question for you: How many questions do you think Jesus asked in the New Testament? Twenty, fifty, one hundred? No, you're wrong. It's three hundred and seven. And how many questions do you think others asked him? One hundred and eighty-three. Want to know how many he answers? Three. According to my math, that means for every question that Jesus answered, he asked one hundred more. So is it really true to say Jesus is the answer, or should we pay more attention to the question? The lens of faith that we explore this episode is all about the question that pointed, probing. Sometimes prickly, sometimes illuminating question. So why are questions so important and so powerful? Good question. Welcome, listeners in podcast land. Whether you're knocking on heaven's door, or you're living and will just let live, or whether you're still searching the jungle for those fun and games, this is the Beyondering Podcast, where we explore faith out of bounds. Picture a large conference table, rimmed with men and women in serious talks, and I'm there too, seated, suited, and sweating, with my hidden fist clenched around a single question. Like a grenade with the pin pulled out. I know when I pull my fist out, when it hits the table, when I release my grip, this explosive question will tear through the room—a jarring shockwave, a fiery eruption of emotion and opinion. So, suck in, slow, deep. Breaths, waiting for just the right moment. I'm not a terrorist. 
I promised I'm not that. And I'm not even a freedom fighter. I just know that things need to change. And I have found within my armory a question that could help. It is time. I stand up, a martyr at the city gates, armed with little more than refined uncertainty and a small spark of insight. I start to speak, and as my audience begins to perceive the top tips of my exclamation marks bending into question marks, I know the world may never be the same. Episode 2.5 is all about the question. Questions have a role to play. They have a power, a capacity to, to probe and provoke, to critique and correct, to remind and remedy. Questions are our prophets. And institutions and communities, they need questions. And they need the questioner. Why? Because groups depend on a healthy tension between who it's called to be and who it needs to become. In order to honestly engage with the reality of the current context and to respond well to the ever-changing world that we're in, healthy groups depend on continuous critique and refinement to prevent it relying on ingrained patterns of operating that work for a time that no longer exists. Questions constantly call us back to our core and to our purpose and towards future possibilities and prevent us hardening and shrinking in on ourselves. We need questions, even the prickly ones, perhaps particularly the prickly ones. But questions aren't always welcome at our dinner tables, in our churches, or around our boardrooms. Whilst needed and necessary, they can become an unwelcome guest that gets squeezed out or ignored or shut down. In this episode, we want to permit and encourage the question and, and, and see where it leads us. So our questioner in question is American Methodist pastor David Felton. You'll hear him speak of this tradition and its founder John Wesley, whose name you may be familiar with. Dave is the co-creator of a series of resources for progressive Christianity called Living the Questions. They've been created to assist groups of people to travel through challenging faith questions and explore content that churches often feel is too uncomfortable for Sunday mornings. He's also the founding member of No Longer Silent Clergy for Justice, an outspoken voice for LGBTQ rights in both the church and in the community at large. Dave Felton is therefore someone who appreciates the need for pointed questions that, that can open up stale aspects of our tradition, but also someone who appreciates the value of questions as a vehicle for personal transformation and liberation. We interviewed him as one of two live interviews at the Common Dreams Conference in Brisbane in 2016, here in Australia. David Felton, can you come to the microphone? Woohoo! And congratulations, second live audience. So, big holler, just help everyone know, listening at home, that you are actually here and it's not canned talk. Make some noise. Yeah. Yeah. Sounds like people. Sounds like people. Real people. I'm going to invite you to tell us who the heck you are, David Felton. So, who are you, what do you do, and, and why are you here? Well, I'm United Methodist pastor in, outside of Phoenix, Arizona, in a town called Fountain Hills. I don't know if you guys when you're flying and people ask you what you do, the last thing you want to do is say, oh, I'm a pastor. Because, you know, you're going to get horrible conversations generally in the plane. So, <laughs> so you know, my colleague Jeff and I have now taken to saying, well, um, when people ask us what we do, we say, well, we do adult videos. Um, <laughs> and that, that usually shuts the person up for the whole flight. So. But that is what we do. And, um, and we have been uh, people who have kind of 
been aggregators of all of the people that we have been influenced by as we've come up through seminary training and our own kind of liberation from some of the more conventional ideas of Christianity. Mm -hmm. And so we found that people say, well, how have you gotten all these people like, you know, Jack Spong or Marcus Borg or Dom Crossan or AJ Levine or Diana Butler Bass, whoever it is. And it's amazing. You just call them and say, hey, let's talk, which I'm sure you guys have discovered doing this. Exactly. They weirdly are people. <laughs> they yeah. are. Uh -huh. And uh, they're happy to talk about what they're passionate about. Mm. And so we've been really fortunate to have hit a lot of these people at the peak of their uh, influence and a lot of their uh, uh, peak writing skills. And so um, the DVDs have been really, really successful. We hit a nerve and they're being used in about 6,000 churches and faith communities around the world at this point. And the name is Living, living the, the Questions. Questions. And we're livingthequestions.com. Yep. It is a DVD-based curriculum. And that name itself gives an insight as to, I guess, your general approach to faith. Some of the signs that I sometimes drive past in local churches is, you know, Answers in Genesis or, or even the Alpha Course, which is another popular alternative. Uh, but Living the Questions, that gives an insight as, into the approach. Right, and I think that our initial inspiration actually was because so many of our colleagues we're using the Alpha Course. Right. And we said, oh, we need some, where is that alternative? And so we started looking around and discovered that if, if there was gonna be an alternative, we were gonna have to do it. Mm -hmm. And like you, know, you guys have expressed with starting the podcast, I mean, the major qualification for doing a project like this is the degree to which you're naive enough to think you can do it. <laughs> and so we thought we could do it and we've been into whole new worlds that we had never ever planned. Because you mentioned you hit a nerve. What, what has it done for people? Well, the best way to explain it, I think, is from the way it, it, it started. And that was that Jeff, and, Jeff Proctor Murphy, who's my writing partner and, and United Methodist colleague, we would work together on sermons because we both had young families. And so we would share the work. One week, one of us would do more of the exegesis and the other would come up with stories and things like that. Next week, we'd flip. So, you know, people would get the benefit of both of our insights and ideas. And we would be able to really hone some, some interesting uh, interpretations of what we had basically learned in seminary. And inevitably, in both of our churches, we would get the same questions afterwards, which was, why have I never heard this before? Where, you know, what kind of crazy, who are you? And I, we'd say, well, this is what we learned in seminary. And they said, it couldn't possibly be what you learned in seminary. Um, and I, we would say, well, it's been being taught in seminary for a hundred years. <laughs> And so if you have a beef, you need to talk with the pastor before me. <laughs> we sent you away to learn what? <laughs> exactly, exactly. So when we went to, Jeff and I went to one of the uh, Jesus Seminar meetings in Santa Rosa, California. And at the time, our combined ages was younger than most of the people at the event. Yeah. And we thought, you know, this is a great message that needs to get out, but this generation is going away. And we need to figure out a way that is accessible to younger people that will engage people in conversation about these topics. So that's when we started to invite some of these people to Phoenix to videotape them. And we realized instead of doing big chunks of, of talking heads, um, we would find that a number of people were all talking about you know, the same thing and what a disaster it was, you know, like uh, substitutionary atonement. And, just how that, there's no very good thing about that. That nothing that appeals to anyone anymore, really. Um, it may have had its day, but so we would create this montage of a half a dozen people that would talk about all the different ways, maybe the origin of substitutionary atonement and how, you know, the evolving understanding of it is now different. And then there'd be a break in the video and we'd have open-ended questions for people to process. And that's what really hit the nerve, is mm -hmm. it wasn't just input, and so you could feel good about having learned something. Uh, the real power that we've discovered in the program is the conversation that people have, mm -hmm. and the realization that I can ask, ask these questions that I didn't think were safe to ask. And they have permission to say, I've, I've believed this all my life. I just thought I was the only one. And all of a sudden, they're in a group of 20 people 
who all feel the same way. And it's an incredible experience of community. We've advertised that it's supposed to take about, you know, an hour and a half to two hours to do one of these. My wife knows that on the nights when I'm doing Living the Questions with a new group that I'm not going to be home till after 10.30 because <laughs> people just do not want to stop yeah. talking. And I think it's because of that sense of, of uh, intimacy and, uh, and liberation. People talk about that a lot mm -hmm. because the church has had as its business model um, tamping down any questions or any doubt. Mm. Uh, it's really been dependent on that in order to maintain the brand. And uh, what we've done is say, no, the brand is all about getting back to what Jesus taught rather than what people have made up about what Jesus taught. Mm. And people feel that's a real uh, change in the way they've been raised. Mm. Mm. And it's interesting for Lucas and I as millennials that are two years younger than yourself, David. Um, because Thank you for that. Because <laughs> we're thinking about future church and forms and, and what moving forward mm -hmm. future forms of faith might mm -hmm. look like. And it sounds like Living the Questions is stumbling over some of the things that people are looking for that aren't there. And that's permission to ask the questions, room for doubt, a capacity to hold the diversity of opinion. People are going to these small groups outside of church time right. to create seemingly what they're not getting within their church structure. Is that sort of what you're finding? Yeah, and I mean, we've had a variety of circumstances where people use the program. The national UCC, the United Church of Christ in, in North America, they use the program as part of their church planting curriculum so that a number of church planters who were aiming at millennial crowds would advertise Living the Questions um, in the local pub mm -hmm. and they would you know, have the pub for, you know, Thursday night or, you know, an off night, Monday night or something. And that is where they would gather people to watch the videos and to talk about it over a beer or whatever, because it was, it's not designed to, to be in a church. It can be used anywhere. We have a lot of people uh, that use it just for their small groups in their homes. And in fact, we've had a lot of people who have contacted us and say, what do we do? Our pastor won't allow us to use this program in our church. Right. I mean, I, I would not want someone from some fundo church coming in and teaching a class underground at my church yeah. and yeah. undermining the kind of culture and community that we'd created. Mm. So I don't want to say to someone, well, you can just do it in your home and undermine the pastor there. Yeah. Um, but that's what often happens because people are so hungry for this. This conversation is all about living the questions with you and, 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 in, and in some time we're going to invite questions uh, from, from our audience members here as well. But there's one particular audience member who I think we'll, we'll start with. He's a young child, Faith. So, Faith has ladies, not been seen in the flesh before. Faith this. has never been seen in the flesh. So ladies and gentlemen, can we welcome Faith? <laughs> Hi Faith. Hi David, I'm Faith and I'm five. When I'm your age, what will church look like? Yeah. Wow. Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> you, um, what, what, what are you Can you say edit today? this blank look on my face <laughs> into the... I'm not sure if anybody can begin to fathom what it will look like in 50 years. Um, my kids are, are faith's age, just a little bit older, and I see them participating in our faith community, but I also see them already moving into other areas of expression um, based on what we, what my wife and I and what our community uh, has tried to really instill in them. And so I'm thinking that um, there are values of compassion and generosity and empathy and care for the downtrodden and an awareness of the, the, the creation that needs to be cared for. All of these things that are values for me that I don't think are Christocentric, that don't need Jesus in the mix, but 
when Jesus is involved, there are some good stories to tell. And so whatever the church looks like, I would hope that it continues to acknowledge that Jesus has some good angles on these things, but that I don't think, you know, in any way, and I, it's strange to even talk like this, but I don't think Jesus has any skin in the game as far as his being included in the furtherance of these values. I mean, he, you know, if he were here today, he's like, I could care less. I mean, I don't need to be in this. What's important is that you embrace the values that, that I embraced. And it's not about believing a, a bunch of stuff about me. It's about doing what I asked you to do. And so I think that that can take on all kinds of forms. And I'm excited to see what it looks like. Uh, my eldest is 16 years old. And I, you know, it's pretty age appropriate. He comes to me and he says, uh, so dad, do you think it's okay for me to be both a Methodist and an atheist? <laughs> and I said, well, most people think your dad is. So yeah, I think that's okay. You know? Um, and that's really because the way I talk and the way I approach my spiritual journey and my leadership of a local congregation is completely mystery to so many other people because it doesn't fit the mold of what they think church is supposed to be. And so already, I mean, we don't have to wait 50 years. I mean, the way we're expressing Christianity is in no way on the radar of a lot of people. We've already shared earlier here at Common Dreams about the experience we had last summer in, in our church where eight other churches in Fountain Hills um, decided to gang up on us and preach six weeks of sermons coordinated about how evil we were. And they, they and I mean, they weren't, they weren't pulling any punches. They were, they compared us to Nazis and they said that we were like a computer virus that needed to be wiped off the computer. Um, they called us worse than Satan. And I, Hey, I think that's, wow. you know, you got to go a long way yeah. for, in some people's minds to do that, but for others, not much. Um, but you know, so by virtue of our simply having been outspoken about welcoming LGBTQ people into our community and to be outspoken about some of the other social issues in our town, that was enough to already make us unchurch hmm. for these people. So um, I have no idea what it's going to look like in the years to come, but whatever it is, I want to be a part of encouraging people to be free to embrace those values that I think Christianity has been on about for many, many, for, well, since the beginning, mm. but that um, have been obscured by all of our traditions and, and cultural overlays. Um, Yvette Flunder is one of our contributors. She does this great uh, riff on how, you know, and, you know, it's pretty provocative. She's, uh, she's like, ah, oh, yeah, we need to undress Jesus. You know, he's just layered with all of these different uh, things that we've put on him. And we need to peel off all the layers. We need to get Jesus right down to the bone, you know, um, and see what it was that he was on about. And that's, that's the work of a lifetime. And it's something that you hand off to someone else to experience and express in their own generation uh, without your imposing your ideas on them. Mm. So, I mean, I'm a few years from the end of my career. And so I'm looking forward to seeing what the next generation does when institutionally, uh, and, and this is where I, I really am interested in what you guys are doing because I really think Australia and New Zealand are 20, 30 years ahead of us in the United mm -hmm. States as far as thinking through the reality of what church is gonna look like. Because in the US, we're just totally in denial. We think, oh yeah, we're gonna, this is going to go on. But demographically, you know, the average age of a United Methodist in the U.S. is, you know, nearly 60, maybe a little older than 60. And so the folks that are of that generation that are used to giving and supporting financially the church are gone. And so we're not going to be able to sustain our huge, you know, brick and mortar. And maintenance. Uh, yeah, yeah. It's, it's huge. So mm -hmm. that change is happening right now. And I think a lot of people are just um, plowing through and not mm -hmm. making plans for what that is going to 
So there you go, Australians. We are dying better than America. <laughs> there you go. It's good to know. It's one up on the, yeah, on yeah. the USA. And yeah. I just I just love that, uh, you know, David Felton is such a unifying force. You've brought eight separate churches together in your area. <laughs> <laughs> we heard uh, a speaker yesterday talk about, if we're talking of spirit, we can talk of the community spirit. We can mm -hmm. talk of team mm -hmm. spirit. Whenever we see those values embodied, that that's okay that's enough and that's actually spirit at work so i'm interested into why it's hard for the church to be able to do that to actually name and see stuff happening beyond itself why is it hard for us to release to let go to see new and different things emerge because the church is totally enslaved and a, uh, an expression of this western european idea of institution and corporate gathering and um, and in our case capitalism you know the church has a business model that says you are a horrible awful worm and the only way that you are going to get God's attention and God and any kind of of love or compassion from God is if you attend our church and bring your checkbook you're, um, you're pointing at me. Is yeah, sorry. I, I, yeah, so. He's got a bigger checkbook. Point yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I bet. So, but it's, and, and I mean, me pointing at you is, is that's the reality. That yeah. is the reality of the yeah. church. It's People feel experience. like, yeah. oh, and, and so when you suggest that, well, let's, let's talk about some of these things that for a lot of people make Christianity, Christianity, and without which there would be no Christianity for them like a physical, literal resurrection of Jesus. For a lot of people, if you let that move into the category of metaphor, then you've undone Christianity because the supernatural understanding of that is what makes them a Christian. And their ability to believe that that's literal, uh, despite the irrationality of that, makes you a better Christian than people that can't. Right? So it's your ability to believe nine unbelievable things before breakfast that <laughs> makes you better than everybody else. And so it completely turns the values upside down. And so I think that that's how the church maintains its control over people is saying, we're the only ones that have this message. And so if you suggest that, hey, we can, we can uh, loosen our grip on some of these doctrines and creeds and uh, see that there are different ways of looking at it, people start to panic because, and, and I, I certainly see it in my own congregation, um, we have a lot of younger families with younger kids who don't come to church very often. And it's our own damn fault because we've said, you know, God doesn't really care if you come to church every Sunday. You know, it's, but there are other things what that we do together that are community-based and that are, outreach phase, but the older crowd is like, where are all the young people? And I said, well, you got to look collectively over the course of the whole week and what they're engaged in and what they've become engaged with in the community that the church wouldn't touch with a 10-foot pole. But they've been inspired by their own faith to engage in as an expression of their spirituality. And so it's happening, you know, it's, it's, it's making a difference in the world, but it's not able to be measured in the old way where you can say, well, we had so many people in church and they've given this much. And so that's another way that the church starts to panic because they can't measure their success in a capitalist kind of uh, social norm. Mm. Their love isn't being branded or named and therefore, you know, we, can, we can't take credit for it. Because that's right, yeah. yeah. So that, that's the, the fear button in people. It's really easy to press. The church is dying or they're all leaving, no millennials are coming. Um, or if we start doing those questions, you know, we're gonna pull back the curtain, there's a little man driving the show rather than the great and powerful Oz. It's easy to press that fear button in people. How do you press what I'm sure is there, the other button in people that is, it's bigger than us. It, right. There's possibility out there that there's new horizons uncharted. Right. How do you We're, we're driving button? to something, not being driven from something. Right. Yeah. Are you familiar with Fowler's Stages of Faith? I mean, it's one of those things that when you go to seminary, that's like, oh, here. Um, and it's one of those uh, uh, one of those really helpful expressions of, I think, the human experience 
that doesn't get out into most people's conversation. I'm really and, familiar. Do you want to just explain it for yeah. me? <laughs> <laughs> so James Fowler was a United Methodist pastor, sociologist who worked at Emory University, and he started to recognize across the board, whatever denomination you were part of, whatever faith tradition you were part of, that you would move through these certain stages. And they were inevitable. Well, they weren't inevitable, but they were sequential. And sometimes, if the circumstances were right, you would move from one stage to the next. And the first one is your basic kind of magical thinking when you're a child. Uh, you believe what everybody tells you and your parents are godlike, uh, you know. Um, and then you move to the, the second stage and it starts to be more of a conventional kind of uh, socialization and you start to understand how relationships work and how you make your way in the world. And the third stage is, uh, uh, where a lot of people end up, which is just kind of a general uh, soft literalism about a lot of liter uh, religious uh, uh, beliefs. Um, but then the fourth stage is critical thinking. Um, and a lot of people enter that in either late high school or college. That's why a lot of people have the experience that they go away to college, they're exposed to things they've never been aware of before, and they often end up not coming back to many of the outlooks that they left home with. And that often includes religion. And you can end up staying and being stuck in critical thinking your whole life. And it can kind of be kind of a barren, kind of uh, unhappy place when you're just, uh, everything, is, everything sucks and it's bad. It's deconstruction. It's, it's deconstruction, important. deconstruction. But then there's this, this fifth level, this fifth stage, that says, oh, we're going to move on to a more metaphorical understanding, a more universal understanding of some of these principles that major religions embrace across the world. And then the fifth stage is uh, the fifth stage is like this universal love, mm -hmm. uh, universal kind of understanding and acceptance of it. And we're talking Gandhi level. You know, Martin Luther King Jr., where you're willing to Lucas sacrifice Tyler. yourself. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So um, Tony Abbott is in that list, isn't he? Yeah. <laughs> so, um, so I just, I, you know, and I was pretty smug three years ago when I was here, and you guys had just elected Tony Abbott. <laughs> but with our election coming up, and this in a, goes oh, to yeah, yeah. <laughs> not feeling so happy now. But um, so I just think that when you put that in front of people, and you say, okay, your really irritating, you know, Uncle Rupert is, he's in, he's, he's in stage three, and he hasn't even gotten to stage four, or whatever it is. He hasn't gotten to critical thinking yet. Um, and he's afraid to go to critical thinking because he's spent his whole life believing this particular way. Mm -hmm. And he knows deep down that if he allows for even a moment of critical thinking that it's a slippery slope into a new place. And so that's where I think you find a lot of fundamentalists and evangelicals are trapped mm. in that space. And I also think you find a lot of just everyday uh, normal pedestrian attenders at your mainline churches in the US and I would suspect in a lot of uniting churches and, and other denominations here where they've just never been exposed to it. They didn't even know it was an option. And when a pastor or some other influence or teacher says, no, it's okay to ask that question. And let's, I mean, I've been surprised in my years of going around and seeing all the Methodist churches or churches in the Methodist tradition who still use creeds. And Wesley actually took the creeds out of the articles of religion when he was first putting them together because he was afraid people would take them literally. You know, he was like, ah, Let's get rid of those because they're not going to be helpful. They're going to lock people into a certain way of thinking. But I still run into people who say, oh, how are we going to know what to believe if we don't recite the creed every week? If someone else hasn't written it down for exactly, us. Exactly, yeah. you know. And I think it's just selling your birthright when you say, my whole faith tradition is all about affirming what somebody else has written down and how unsatisfying that is for somebody like me and I know there are lots of other people like that. For a lot of people, they think going to church and being bored out of their mind and going through the motions is what church is. 
It's like the penance they have to pay to get into whatever their idea of the afterlife is. Uh, yeah, it's fire insurance, exactly. Um, and so that's a real challenge. And, you know, I've really appreciated people who've come up to me at, at, after my services and they say, well, one thing for sure, you can't fall asleep in your service because you have no idea what you're going to say next. <laughs> and that for me is a real, you know, is a positive thing because we're really trying to make people think. And if I don't say at least one thing on a Sunday that is interesting to me and stretches me, then I, it's a waste of time. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I think that people enjoy being brought along as I kind of explore where, where it's going for me. So do you suspect that it may be a marker of the future shape of sacred communities, whatever that may look like, that, uh, that, it, that it involves that personal and individual, if you like, claiming of that birthright, I love that term, of people's own exploration rather than affirming and, and assenting to, a, to somebody else's words in a creed, that, it's a, that it's a marker might be this wrestling and coming to your own resolution. Yeah, I think there's a real missed opportunity in our Methodist tradition. Um, and I'll throw out another one of those words, which I, I'm sure you know, Lucas, but Matt doesn't know. Um, um, the quadrilateral. Um, yeah, spelled? Right. Yeah. It's, yeah. <laughs> and most Methodists in the, in the U.S. don't know this term. But it's an idea that, that is from the way that Wesley did theology. The quadrilateral, it's the four, four sides or the four... Uh, level things, and there's scripture, tradition, experience, and reason. Um, and the Anglican Church at, at the time Wesley was was doing this was scripture, tradition, and reason. And Wesley's contribution was experience, which was a really dangerous thing, right? Because that's where Satan can get in and manipulate it, you know, throw everything off. So, um, but it's also it's the very thing that makes us who we are. And if our practice of faith doesn't include, you know, our own personal experience, then how sad is that? So the other thing that's really important to remember with the quadrilateral, which is, again, one of the reasons we're called Methodists, is because it's a methodology. It's very confusing to people, especially my Roman Catholic friends who are, like, all about tradition, and you ask a question, and they say, well, what does the Pope say? Um, now, they don't really say that, but they... You know, that's kind of the structure of the church. You ask what the institution's position is on things. Um, and what's important about the quadrilateral is that it's supposed to be expressed in community. So you don't sit down and say, okay, what does scripture say about this? What does tradition say about this? What does experience, my personal experience mean? And what does my reason say? It's supposed to be done in community so that you all work together on it. And what we've done with the, with our confirmants often is we'll like put um, four squares on the, on the floor in, in tape. We'll put an S, a T, and an E, and an R in, in the squares. And then we do a tag team thing where the kids are in each square. And you know you can tag in or tag out of one of the things. But you can only talk about whatever the subject is we're talking about if, you know, from the square that you're in. So, you know, like we talk about, uh, Okay, cheating on a test. So the person's in the scripture box says, well, the Bible says don't lie, blah, blah, blah. The person's in the tradition box says, well, you know, you're not supposed to, you know, cheat and blah, blah, blah. The experienced person says, well, my cousin cheated on a test and got caught. It was really bad. The reason person says, well, you know, you just don't learn the material and that's bad. And they, they, they have to come out with one answer. And with something like that, it's no-brainer because S, T, E, and R in their own way, all contribute to the practical expression or claim that cheating on a test is bad. And I'll never forget one of our confirmation. We had a number of parents there as well, uh, kind of chaperoning, and um, the look on their faces when we said, okay, well, what, what topic do you want to do next? And one of the kids says, let's do abortion. <laughs> and so, wow, I mean... And so the parents were like tagging in because they wanted to get in on this. And they were like, I don't want my kid to speak on this, you know. Yeah, yeah. Um, but, you know, so scripture says, well, thou shalt not kill and blah, blah, blah. And tradition, well, in the Methodist tradition, it says that uh, abortion should be available, but it should be decided between the doctor and the woman. Um, and it, so 
you know, we had someone tag in who knew that about our tradition. Um, someone from experience said, wow, you know, my cousin had an abortion and this is what happened. It was a very moving story. Mm -hmm. um, another person tapped in and said, well, my, you know, sister decided to have a child and it was, you know, and said, oh, so. And then the reason person came in and, and made their arguments. And the bottom line is that all of the positions that people offered were conflicting. Mm -hmm. And in the end, the kids all got together. And their answer was, whether abortion was good or bad or acceptable or not, was, we don't have enough information to make a decision on this. Because we need the specifics of a particular situation before we can make an intelligent decision about that. And I wept. I mean, it was like, these are little Methodists, you know? And it's, it's the very thing that we get dinged on all the time because it's like, you know, Oh, you Methodist, you won't make a decision on anything. You you just say, well, let's talk about that. Yeah. You know, and that's that's really who we are. But I think that if we can hang on to that, and sadly, it's not a discipline that many of our churches practice. Uh, if we can hang on to that model of where we can have that kind of a conversation, where we respect one another's position and we bring in scripture, tradition, experience, and reason, that is community. That is that is establishing a set of values that's based on grassroots right there with the information that you have at hand. So I think there's a lot of potential, rich, genuine community to be had if you are able to actually be in conversation with one another about things that really matter. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where Living the Questions has had kind of a revelatory kind of um, effect on some people because you're often in our culture today not given the space or the time to have a conversation about spiritual matters. In your church when you've been asking the question have you ever had an issue that was so polarizing that you ended up with the church splitting into two groups and how did you deal with that schism to bring them back together? One particular experience is in our denomination right now and we're going through trying to figure out what we're going to do with lgbtq rights and our discipline which is our book of rules and so we're on the verge right now of i think what everybody has not been wanting to say the s word but i don't know what it's irreconcilable differences at this point and so um in my particular jurisdiction i was really um, just privileged and thrilled to be present at the election of and then the consecration of our first openly lesbian bishop partnered. She's married, and um, our whole jurisdiction, they elected her unanimously. She's eminently qualified in every way to be bishop, but the rest of the global United Methodist Church lost their minds, and so they're trying to figure out how to approach this legally and to stop it or to undo it and so you know we're in the midst of that right now so i think that it's helpful when we've already made that decision at our church we've said we're a reconciling church we welcome all people and i'm trying to encourage my colleagues to say don't wait until the church does split and you have to choose which side you go to mm -hmm. you know have that conversation now and I think it comes down to, in anything, the important conversation is with the people with whom you live on a regular basis and whom you covenant with to be in community. And if you can start with that as a foundation, um, I think any number of otherwise super controversial subjects can be dealt with in a civilized way. If there's no particular, this is the one thing I have to believe to be saved, how do you then define or how do you list the criteria for what makes someone a Christian? Well, right now, I don't, I don't consider calling myself a Christian a priority. I really talk about myself as a follower of Jesus because the word Christian carries with it so much baggage in, in my culture and I suspect here as well. And I think that there are some basics that actually go back to the prophets and you know micah 6 8 which i think is uh, a verse where 
just love kindness and do justice and walk humbly with God. I mean, I think that is a summation of what Jesus was on about. And I think if you embrace that and acknowledge that from being from a Jewish tradition, uh, which has very humanist kind of roots, that you start breaking down the expectation that even being a Christian is important. Then you have to have that conversation. Well, you have to be a Christian to go to heaven. Well, wait a second. Hang on. I'm not a person of faith in order to get a reward. Um, I'm a person of faith because it helps me shape my relationships in the world. And again, I don't think that that's necessarily something that needs to have the label of Christian on it. But I am, that is my tradition, so I don't want to discard it. Um, when I'm looking at doing confirmation with, with kids right now, um, we don't emphasize the belief aspect of it. We emphasize more the practice. Um, and we talk about, uh, we want you to have a toolbox full of ways to make decisions in life and of resources that you can refer to to shape your values and uh, enhance your relationships with people who are different than you are. I, I wouldn't say there's a specific belief that I would say you have to have in order to be a Christian, but I think that um, in so many ways, I would hope that the way people who follow Jesus live would be in a manner that would make people say, why do they do that? Well, it's because we've committed ourselves to living the values that Jesus has taught us. And that, I think, would be the measure of whether you were a follower of Jesus or not, and just leave the whole Christian enterprise on the side. I'm reminded that you know, the, the book of Acts talks about the earliest followers, as followers of Jesus being known as followers of the way, right. as in known by their distinctive right. way of being, living. And I was also reminded of that earlier when you spoke about perhaps future forms of sacred community will simply be about the values which they embrace, mm -hmm. regardless of their right. the identity that they, that they wear. Yeah, that passage of Acts is also interesting because it's got a really early marketing campaign for Honda, where they said so the disciples all left in one accord. I don't know if uh, you remember that. Yes. So. Well played. You know, well played. it's a great... This is Dave Felton, father of three. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and there, there was a great mixture of, of laughter and groaning. <laughs> <laughs> that happened there. That Let it really, be noted. That's <laughs> one that my kids go, oh, Dad. <laughs> but can we say a big thank you for, for David Felton and his time joining us? Again, picture a large conference table rimmed with women and men in serious talks. And I'm there too, explaining, reporting, asserting, with full stops, parentheses, and exclamation marks. But then, a question is lobbed into the middle of the room, a grenade pin pulled out. There is a moment of horrified silence before the full implications explode. And for just a second, all is light. There is nothing but the primal. Fight, flight, fury, fear. I didn't see it coming. I couldn't. But nearly instantly, my cognitive framework is torn apart. I am blown free, thrust out of my box. I am cut through, stripped back to a raw truth. A beautiful, indestructible truth that I could never have seen without that single, explosive question. Just as questions can be uncomfortable, unwelcome, yet necessary in our boardrooms and in our communities, 
The same can be said for the questions which arise in our inner communities. These questions which which sneak out from behind our ego's defences can be anything from challenging our own inauthenticity, our habitual responses or our lack of courage. They might be those nagging suspicions that what we had believed to this point may not be based on truth, but on fear, or may no longer apply in light of new experiences and information. These questions might be, what am I afraid of or avoiding? Could I be more open, more generous, or more courageous? Am I being true to who I really am? Is there something I'm unwilling to hear or be open to? These are uncomfortable questions, birthing pains of of a broader and deeper experience of humanity that is awaiting us and begging to find expression. In season one of Beyond Ring, former scientist Val Webb spoke of her experience with questions and of her deep doubt. However, she discovered that this doubt was a driver towards truth, a trait too that science harnesses in pursuit of new horizons. Her questions, whilst painful and uncomfortable, were helping to birth a more integrated and authentic faith. May you love the questions and live the questions, even if that's uncomfortable. So allow us to leave you with one of my favourite quotes from German poet Rainer Maria Rilke. Be patient toward all that is unsolved in your heart and try to love the questions themselves like locked rooms and like books that are written in a very foreign tongue. Do not seek the answers which cannot be given you because you would not be able to live them. And the point is to live everything. Live the questions now. Perhaps you will then gradually, without noticing it, live along some distant day into the answer. Next episode on Beyond Ring, we break out the books and get our geek on as we explore faith through the lens of the scholar with Australian theologian and minister, Reverend Dr. Sally Douglas. So for me, the questions are really central around what is this sacred text that we have in Christian tradition? What is it saying about various issues, you know, suffering, life, death, purpose, love? And what does it mean? What was their context? Who were their audiences? How was this understood in the common era when these texts were being written and what might it mean now? For me, that's incredibly exciting. So join us next episode as we go Beyond Ring. Beyondering was established with the support of the Progressive Christian Network of Victoria and Common Dreams. The podcast is edited and produced by Shaz Mullins and relies on the wisdom and coaching of Andy Bruff. To join the mailing list or to find out more information on the podcast, monthly Beyondering live events, or book, line and thinker, the Beyondering Book Club, go to www.beyondering.com.au. Perhaps particularly the... Perhaps particularly the prickly ones perhaps particularly yeah perhaps the particularly prickly ones (laughs) this is a really prickly one